0: Welcome to the Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United. And I'm Joel Whipperforth, Director
1: of Digital Transformation at Winfield United.
0: So sometimes we get lost in the data privacy conversation of and, and I look at it this way, if I got if I got four fields and I have the data on those fields, meaning yield data, performance data, whatever it might be, I'm still restricted in making decisions on those four fields with the data that I have. And so the term transparency. And I think that if, if that's used by everyone in that data world, what I think is important with data is if I can put my data in the data pool that everybody else has, now I can use a computer to go, give me the scenarios or the probabilities of doing what this farmer did and this farmer did and this farmer did. And this farmer did, and this farmer did to work on my farm and how much better that's going to make me as a grower. So I think truly in the end, that's what we got to look forward to with having your data in the system. So do you get access to those scenarios? No, probably if you don't have that data there, but once you have the data there, now you can pool the data set and start asking questions of if then here's what's going to happen. I think that's probably where we need to get to, but it's the consistency of all these things that we've talked about here for to get through that. So now we can start making those comparison decisions and being a lot smarter than just, hey, looking at my four or five fields. Now I can look at all these different scenarios and bring that into my operation. Yeah, I I think one of the things, you you talk about that dream of a full
1: stack of data. When we started out with R7, the, the whole principle of answer plots in R7 was, we really don't need much of your data to get started to help your farm. We actually have, a, we, we bring a lot of our data to the table from the get-go. Uh, and I think that's a, a value proposition that that we brought early on. Now, as that data has evolved and more farmers have access to digital copies of as applied, as planted, as harvested maps, we also have evolved our definition of what we can do with your data. And we've actually swung, you know, completely to the other side where the True Terra Insights engine with data that's not even in a in a Binary format that some of the data is in the form of a survey that you take. You know what is the spacing of your tile lines. You know do you use conservation structures in your field? We're actually helping producers uh, find a continuous path to improvement for sustainability on that acre, on that specific acre, even right down to the sub-acre standpoint. We can tell you where your areas of highest erosion uh, for soil is, uh, or where your nitrogen use efficiency may be the best or poorest. So I think our data pendulum from, since you don't have any of your data, we've got the data for you, has swung all the way over to, if you have a bunch of the data, we'll also help you create a digital file of some of the things that are in your head and make those binary, which we can store, and uh, and, and actually produce scores that help you on your farm make decisions. So I think that's the inside of those parameters. That's the
0: short journey that we've been on since um, in, in the last eight years. Mm-hmm. So how valuable do you think like the benchmarking aspects of data is and and does that really have a long term play for reason why i should put my data into the cloud or share it with a certain company
1: yeah. So, I, I mean, benchmarking is an interesting uh, interesting piece. Uh, you know, we use benchmarking and satellite imaging to say how your field is doing against a cohort of its peers around you. But that is, is, is strictly based on non-subjective information. It's one satellite image in one field compared to another satellite image and then put into a graph. Where I, I think I would challenge a little bit of the benchmarking is if the if the that it all comes down to data quality when it comes to benchmarking, uh, where all the players in the pool putting in high quality data, and and that's a place where. If the, the data quality is, is left up to a wide variation, and, and not saying that the wide variation may just come from data cleanliness, uh, those who calibrated their yield monitors, those who didn't calibrate their yield monitors, that you want to be working inside of a pool of high quality standards to process that. And so I would just, you know, I, I, you, you got to look around at who's in the marathon
0: running with you to be able to benchmark the quality of your data. So, Joel, with that question, I made you go fishing. You probably caught the biggest fish out of the pond there. <laughs> yes. So that's hey. where I was going with that is some of this benchmarking. And it goes, I think, goes right down to this crowdsourcing data pool. Right. If everybody could go to a website. Like everybody goes to a website and enters their data, then I can see. And it's just like, it's way more complicated than that, I think, to actually get a true benchmark because how do you know Marv down the road is actually calibrating his combine? Or more importantly, does he even have a scale that he's looking at or is his scale cap? I mean, there's all these things going on. A lot of the times you go, ah, oh, well, wait, that doesn't matter. It's all relative anyway. But in the end, if you really want to have that robust data set and you need to go down that road path, the benchmarking portion of it, I think that becomes really valuable. So whether you're into the crowdsourcing or you want the benchmark, I mean, we're kind of taught at a young age to have a report card, right? And that's what I think the benchmark is, is that's our report card. But it's still, as a grower, I'm not sure that it tells me, hey, great, I got a D, now what do I do? Or I got an A, how do I get any better? I mean, we still have to get to more pieces of data so we can help make the decision of what's the next step. What did the grower that had the A do differently than the grower that had the D? And that's what crowdsourcing or this data pool isn't really good at. Um, you can benchmark yourself, but it's what's the next step to go forward with?
1: That's that's a great point. Yeah. So you know, John, you talked about the the quality of data and when the quality of data really matters. There's there's this thing called the law of big numbers, right? And and it says that as long as the numbers are big enough, it should eliminate all of the errors in the data. But I think as we break the, one of the classic cases of this was, you know, guessing the weight of the cow at the county fair, that if you asked hundreds of people the weight of the cow, that they were able to guess very accurately down to the, the, the pound what the weight of the cow was by, by sourcing, you know, the crowd. And certainly there was a range of, of data that was, that was collected there, anywhere from, you know, the child who guessed that the cow weighed 150,000 pounds, which is unrealistic for a cow down to the the prankster who was dubiously trying to say, this cow weighs one pound. I will throw their error off. And of course, that law of big numbers got the median guess back to the normal. And that, that's fine as you're, long as you're looking at one variable and your sample size has a high representation. But, population. Corn planting populations is one place that this particularly falls apart because you have a sample size bias. John, one of the things that I look at this is if you were to look at the most common planting populations, what would be the most common planting population across the entire U.S.? What is the median planting population across the U.S.? 34,000. 34,000. Okay. Which is to say not many states plant at 24,000 and not many farmers, no matter where you are, are planting at 45,000. Is that a fair assessment? Yep. And the sample bias there would be if you're looking at yield by planting population in a crowdsourced data set, the the sample numbers at 24,000 would have a Western bias would have a sample it would have a bias towards more arid climate conditions which if you're farming in central illinois under you know 35 40 inches of rainfall annually in the growing season it's a pretty worthless mm-hmm. data set and likewise if you're looking at the 45,000 plants per acre data set and there's only 20 acres represented in there versus 34,000 there's hundreds of thousands of acres represented in there sample bias becomes a huge challenge in there So when you're looking at crowdsourcing information, it's fun to say that we could all guess the weight of the cow at the county fair, but can you guess the cow's vital signs during particular growth stages and where you have low sample inputs? And that's where the law of big numbers really falls apart, is on the edges, the fringes and the extremes of products or data.
0: So I take this back to a previous episode. It's the same way. We, it's just the bell curve, right? So we look at droplet data. We're looking at different performances of herbicides through a spray analysis centers. Hey, we got our driftable fines on one side. We got our big bowling balls on the other. And we got this bell curve of where that volume mean diameter lies. And that's where optimum droplet size is. And so so I think any term of data, we look at that bell curve. And we want to be somewhere within that bell curve. And then we know we're, we're in the zone of being able to make a decision decision from that. If you find yourself on the edge, you'd maybe say, hey, this isn't enough data or this isn't the right source of information that I need to make this decision. But I got to ask you, Joel, what what did the cow weigh? Uh, You'll have to go to the county fair and and find out. What about the pig? Did you know know the pig? I didn't guess the weight of the pig. So Joel, talking about big data and and the curves of of where this data is coming from, do any of the tools that we've talked about on previous shows rely on big data? Yeah, absolutely. I I think the term big
1: data starts to invoke this, you know, uh, get your tinfoil helmet on and be afraid of big data. Uh, But I, I think once you break down the term big data, you start to deal with terms like uh, ML, machine learning, or AI, artificial intelligence, which you have to be careful in the farming community saying AI. It might stand for active ingredient or uh, that other thing that uh, my brother uses on the dairy farm for all the, the cows that are artificially inseminated. So, in our term for technology, artificial intelligence, all of those are subsets of mathematical equations that use vast amounts of data and try to arrive at an answer using the data. Now, uh, when we specifically talk about big data, that law of big numbers plays into effect that you have to have a large enough sample size. But one of the core elements of big data is actually the training data in the algorithm. And so in, in this case, you know, training data is informing uh the the model, what a known known is. And so uh, let's use the example, if we were trying to run a image recognition program and we were trying to teach the image recognition program what a banana was, and you were taking a picture of the table the, the fruit on the table, you would wanna say, here's a picture of a banana. And then the machine would go, okay, I got that. And then you would show the machine a picture of the the banana again. You'd say, this is another picture of a banana. And the machine would say, okay, I got it. And then you would show the picture or the machine a picture of an apple. And if the machine algorithm, if the big data is working properly, the machine should go where'd the banana go, right? It should be able to recognize that that outside uh, form of that. So a lot of big data is around the, the types of algorithms and the methodology to process large amounts of data. All of that is to say that, you know, inside a field forecasting tool, we introduce a training data set to the model, typically answer plot data, some USDA data at the onset of the the field forecasting tool, and then we train that, that model on that data and try to come up with an outcome. Now, one of the interesting things that you can do with big data is you can withhold some of that training data. And uh, in particular, and, uh, and this year, uh, when we talk about field forecasting tool and, and big data, there, we were showing up with really low yields in some parts of the country. And the really low yields we were coming up with mainly were due in part to low solar radiation levels. You know, we turns out, you know, he who photosynthesizes wins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the one of the challenges with the year was the heat was there. It was warm, but with an El Nino year, it was also cloudy, so we a GDU, a, a growing degree y- days based equation, was not fully. Uh, representative of how much sunlight the plants were able to capture and so what we did using the model we withheld the 2017 training uh, data set for weather and we went back and we reran 2019 versus 2017 against our model and we determined that solar radiation contributed to about six percent of the w- of the models' accuracy on yield and that's all a way that we use big data to, to come back and try to give some explainability around why the algorithm would Was super sensitive, or in some of the fields was showing low yield when the farmer was saying, I've always gotten good yields here. How could your model be so wrong? It turned out the model was right. Mm -hmm. And that was all the big data going back in there and parsing out where the model was the most sensitive
0: to. So when you talk about training data sets or big data, I got schooled in this a couple of years back. And I kind of want you to mention, what do you mean by, let's just talk in quantity of data points. So training data set, how many data points is realistic versus big data terminology? What does that mean? Like thousands, millions, like just data points. Yeah. Well, nobody likes to hear that they've got small data, John. But. And I got schooled and telling I got, I was told I had small data and I had big data. So, or I got told I had small data and I thought I had big data. So I think- Do we, you need to hit the gym if you've got small data? the exercise gym for, for data extraction yeah probably. Okay. that's probably a good idea
1: you know I I, I don't know I'm curious what, what they said about that because here, here's my initial reaction to that is uh, if I was doing an image recognition platform and I needed to train specifically against hail damage in corn I probably only need about a hundred images mm-hmm. to train against for the artificially intelligent algorithm to sh- see an image it's never seen and uh, and see that but on something that's more biologically dynamic, say southern uh, leaf rust, uh, southern corn leaf rust, where that may affect the plant at multiple growth stages, different light saturation levels of the photo, I may need upwards of 100,000 images to train against that particular disease because it's biologically different. There's a variation in the the intensity of the disease. And, you know, like Goss's wilt looks just a little different at the onset versus when the plant is nuclear toast, you know. So I, I think that's one of the elements is, you know, How complex is the problem? Probably relates to how much data that you need. But when you specifically think about big data, what was the number that they threw out for you? So, I
0: mean, for an example, I had a data set that I had, say, 23,000 data points, and I was laughed at when I thought, hey, I want to, here's what I want to do with this data. I want to make a decision and put a fingerprint on, you know, how we would characterize a certain product. And it really, the answer is, it depends on which form of AI or algorithm that you're going to use to extract that. So, like you said, for some of the simpler things like recognition, pattern recognition, it's probably not going to take much. But if you want to do some kind of a decision making, it takes a lot more data because now you have to have all the different scenarios that might go into the decision and you have to have a separate training set to say, okay, based on what we took from this big data, let's run through our training data and see if we get the right answer. And so then we're talking probably millions of data points, which for The human mind is a lot of times unfathomable, right? I couldn't manage 23,000 data points, let alone a million data points to kind of sit on top of them and babysit to say, oh, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. We have to have the computer to do that. So I think when we talk in terms of Big data or artificial intelligence, that really puts it in perspective to me. It's when you get to the point where you can't really manage the data points, you need to put them through and, and learn something from that or, you know, have that teachable insight that you can then apply to everyday living.
1: Yeah, I, I think you you hit on something there. There's varying degrees of data science that you'd you'd bring in here. The the most historical one is uh, is statistics, where you'd use linear regression, and you know dots on the line are good, and it's very simple. Probably the next step up from there is to do a cluster analysis in something called Bayesian statistics, and you're just putting looking to put like things together. And then, you know, probably a step up from there is something like a random forest uh, algorithm or equation. And random forest is good at isolating the most important variables while downplaying the the, the noise signals in there, and, and and really rising up the most influential portions. You know, and then there's probably even a step to the right of that that deals with. Uh, Uh, Neural networks and neural networks, as it says, you know, is a little bit how your brain functions, where, you know, the decision tree is trying to make multiple connections and run huge quantities of of options amongst the decision. Uh, and so there's this kind of gradient as we look at, you know, big data and what particular algorithm or big data principle we would apply. In statistics, you still want a high sample size. You still want, you know, 3 to 400 replications of answer plots to get that really narrowly significant difference of 1.2 bushels. But in big data, you need more columns of variability and more rows of sample sizes yes. to, to actually get to you know the ability to run You know something like a neural network, and that's where you know opportunities for like matching a breeding pairing probably has a better opportunity to use that really big computing power of of a neural network, or even as you you might hear something about quantum computing. Quantum computing you know isn't doesn't treat zeros and ones. It could be a zero or a one, and the possibilities there to unlock the human genome or you know the soil sequence genome. That's probably. where a quantum computing piece will be used to develop new medicines, you know, look at pharmaceuticals and be able to unlock new combinations of chemistries that should fit well together and just digitally doing that. So different problems require different volumes of data.
0: So this episode was about data privacy, and I think we gave a lot more than that. And if you just understood what Joel talked about there, I think that makes it uh, that much more relevant of how we need to be transparent with our data. And then all the things we talked about today of what are the next steps that we can use the data with going forward to make decisions on the farm.
1: You've been listening to the Deal with Yield podcast. If you enjoy the show, which by now you've been listening a long time, please rate and review us online on your podcast app. And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com.